welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Tone Dreesen, who is the president of Architects DCA in Ottawa, and he's the past president of the Ontario Association of Architects. Have you heard there's a housing crisis? It's pretty much all anyone can talk about, and that's understandable, but the causes of that crisis are many. One can blame a lack of government involvement in the creation of social housing, or too much red tape in municipal policies, or the abject greed of developers, land speculators, and investors who see housing as a place to park their money. But have you thought about the building code? Chances are you haven't, but this important document meant to govern our health and safety indoors might have some big holes in it, and it might be causing some complications that are getting in the way of building desperately needed new units. The problems with the code is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. Quote, In Canada, building codes are often playing catch-up with the times and can vary in confusing ways from province to province. The latest version of the National Building Code of Canada took years to develop. The 2020 edition of the NBC wasn't published until March 2022, and since then has required additional time for adoption by provincial jurisdictions. There is a separate Ontario Building Code, which contains modified elements of the NBC, but dates from a previous version. The current OBC is from 2012, was amended as recently as 2022, and includes requirements for durability that the NBC does not. Unquote. That was from an op-ed by Tone Dreesen that only begins to describe the issues with the building code, which you probably think is a pretty simple, straightforward thing, but in the actuality, it's really not. That paragraph that I just read from is just the beginning of the drama, because there's not just one building code, as implied, there are several. There's a building code for how you build a residential building, and there's a building code for how you build an office building. There's a building code for how you build a three-story apartment building, and there's a building code for how you would build a four-story apartment building. And as you will learn in this podcast, there's actually no difference between how the building code treats a seven-story building and how it treats a 70-story building. That's seven zero. Isn't that nuts? But how does that affect affordability, you might be asking? That's another thing you're going to learn in this podcast, because it seems like our building code might be getting in the way of making more of that mythical missing middle. At what point do all our building code regulations become so overly prescriptive that it's almost not worth building anything at all? That's what we're going to try and get to the bottom of, of this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast. Tone Dreesen is going to talk about the overlapping demands of all the various building codes and building code updates. And then Dreesen is going to take us through step-by-step step about how the building code takes an apartment project and actually makes it more expensive and requiring higher density to make plausible. We will also talk about how the building code is used to improve accessibility and how it needs to change to reflect the new climate realities, and whether having no building code is better than having this one. And finally, we will discuss balancing safety with affordability, why changing the code is such a slow process, and the pressure on architects to adapt to all the changes happening. 
So I caught up with Tone Dreesen a couple of weeks ago via the Zoom. Tone Dreesen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I have a bit of a riddle to start us off with. Uh, what would be better, uh, having no building code at all or using the current building code as sort of the best possible standard for building construction in Ontario? Oh, that's a good one. Um, that's a good one. Um, you know, there's an awful lot that's really good about the building code. Um, its challenge is that it is the very least we could do. Mm -hmm. um, and so having no code would mean we could theoretically do even less. Uh, so that would be bad. Um, but when we think about the building code as being the least we can do, and we always do the very least, we're not getting any further. We're not advancing our uh, desire to create better places. We're doing consistently the least we have to. Okay. That sort of fits into what I've heard from a lot of people in construction over the years, um, which is why I, I kind of like wanted to phrase that first question that way. So now that we've kind of established that, I want to talk about how we get the building code, um, you know, and I want to walk through it step by step because I don't entirely understand it myself. And I spent most of last night sort of looking at it. So there is a first, first, first things first, there's a national building code, correct? That's correct. There is a national building code and it is, um, it's, uh, I don't know the correct term exactly, but it's, it's a building code that is written as a national guideline, but it's not really, you know, in force. It doesn't have uh, a legislative power behind it until it's enacted and adopted by provinces. Okay. So different provinces will adopt the national building code and say, we're going to use the national building code, oh, but we're going to put in a couple of extra chapters on something. And so they modify something or they amend a few sections. And, and that sort of becomes then their provincial building code. And that's mandated through uh, the ministry of usually some sort of ministry of housing or ministry of, uh, you know, there's a, there's a different minute changes depending obviously on which province, but for sake of, let's say the ministry of housing would say, we're going to adopt the national building code with, you know, two extra pages added to it or two extra supplements added to it. Okay. But the point of the national building code isn't, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, it isn't to make sure that how a five-story apartment building in Alberta is built with the same standards as a five-story apartment building in Ontario. It would. Um, okay. And that's where, you know, if you do work for the federal government, and let's say you're building a five-story apartment building for the federal government in Alberta, you would build it exactly the same code as you would in Ontario. Okay. And then, you know, if, if Alberta said, we're going to use the national building code, and Ontario said, no, no, we're going to use the Ontario building code, well, 99% of it is going to be, you know, the same. They're going to be very, very similar because the provincial code in, for example, in Ontario would follow along and adopt the elements of the national building code because these things are sort of, you know, there's a good logic behind this. The reason why, you know, you can have a maximum 180 millimeter rise on a step is because that's what's actually comfortable for people. People, nobody wants steps that are too steep to use or uncomfortable to use. And right. these are by national standards, international standards, expectations, and so forth, which is why you can use a staircase in Paris and it's, you know, reasonably the same as you can use it here. Gotcha. So when provinces get the national building code um, and then they just, I guess adaptation is probably the way to put it, is that they decide to adapt it for 
the province and make certain changes, I guess. Is there kind of like an expectation in terms of like how Ontario would want to adapt the national building code or how Saskatchewan would want to adapt it or how New Brunswick would want to adapt it? I guess is it like, are there like regional things that go into the, the provincial adaptation of a national building code? Well, there are, and I could speak sort of more particularly to Ontario because I know Obviously. that go the best. Um, you know, for example, Ontario has something called Part 11, um, which is a section that deals with renovations. So if you have, and I'll use an example of a house, if you have a house and you're building a staircase, um, but it's a renovation to an existing house, you don't necessarily have to meet the same headroom requirement as you do if it was a new house, because it's an old house. And that allows you to renovate. And again, you know, again, it's minimum standards. You can do something that's not quite as good as if it was new, recognizing it's an existing thing and you're kind of making a modification, you're kind of making an adaption. The national code doesn't have the same extent of uh, expectations, which creates some challenges. So if you're working, for example, on a project in Ontario, for the federal government that wants to use the national code, but you have to get a municipal building permit, you somehow have to thread the needle between the national code asking for only things in the new building code, while mm-hmm. you're also threading the needle with things in part 11 under existing conditions for renovations, trying to get your permit. And then you run into a conflict because things in the national code might be different than in the Ontario code. Like for example, uh, well, staircases used to be one of them. Uh, they used to have different height requirements. It was only 20 millimeters, but there was a different height requirement. Um, and, you know, bathrooms and accessible bathrooms, grab bars are in a different place in the national code than they are in the Ontario code. And it's subtle. It's really subtle. And it's not that one is better than the other. You know, mm-hmm. they're just slightly different. And so you try to get a building permit with the national code because you're working for public works. And the Ontario building department says, well, your grab bar is in the right place. And you go, yeah, but it's a federal tenant. And they kind of, everyone kind of shrugs and looks the other way because it doesn't really comply with code, but it doesn't really not comply with code. It's just slightly different. Out of curiosity, if a, a building is relatively new, um, like let's say it was built in sometime after the start of the 21st century. And if we're talking about two similar buildings, you know, uh, in two different provinces, are, are is there more of a chance that they've been sort of built with the same regulations in mind as opposed to uh, a renovated house that was maybe originally built in the 1920s? Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I guess what I'm asking is the newer the build, the more closely there's going to be some sort of universality with the national yep. building code. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Oh, OK, well, that's interesting. Uh, the other part of this, too, is um, logistically speaking, would it not be easier for provinces to create their own building code as opposed to waiting for a federal regulation to come forward? Because, as as you said, there's going to be some universality, like the, the height of stairs. Those are like international standards. So are we kind of, I guess, doubling the workload by having a national building code that then has to be adapted provincially. We kind of are in some respects. Um, I mean, there's a there's a division of power, if you will, um, and this goes into you know how constitutions are written. But <laughs> the national building code is written by you know the National Research Council, and they write it, but they don't have any power to say to a provincial 
uh, body, like a Ministry of Housing, thou shalt build houses this way, thou shalt build apartment buildings this way, because they don't have any legislative power in that sense. So they can write this code. And, you know, they could also write a code and say, you know, all microphones will be purple. And, you know, nobody would care because people were like, why? Why does this affect me? Until there was some ministry of microphones that said, oh, well, okay, we're going to adopt this national standard. Okay, from now on, all microphones are going to be purple. Like, there's a reason why, you know, we have, uh, you know, a, uh, for example, a, you know, a, a car. A car is licensed in Ontario and it has turn signals on the left and the right. Well, that's the same in Alberta. Um mm -hmm. Same in BC. It's the same in Quebec because we have a standard expectation that's built on North American, European, international standards that turn signals are going to be on the left and the right, and you're going to use in this way, which is why you can go to Ireland, get a rental car, hop in it, drive around, and know that your turn signals are going to be on the left and the right because it's all going to work the same because we have these sort of international standards. Where it starts to fall apart is that you get the national building code that's written and then provinces take it and they say, okay, this is a great book. Oh, but we want to make a few changes. Oh, well, how many changes? Which changes? When did those changes come out? How long does it take to create those new changes? And that's where the hurdle kicks in is if you say that, you know, 95%, 99% of the national code, you're just going to adopt and you're going to put out, I don't know, 10 pages, 20 pages. 50 pages of amendments to that code and you're going to you know adopt that and you're going to publish that and suddenly boom here's the Ontario building code that's fine and that's what I think a lot of provinces do Ontario sort of rewrites its own code and mm. and for whatever reason historically we've always written our own we've written our own building code for a long time so it's not just you know, I don't know why, but why it's so complicated, but we're still using a building code today from 2012, even though the national building code came out in 2020. Now, mm -hmm. the 20 national building code wasn't actually in force until 2022. Mm -hmm. So, it took, you know, years to write, years to get published, years to come into effect. And now we're sitting here with an 11-year-old, almost 12-year-old Ontario building code that we're trying to update. And we keep amending and updating it to reflect evolutions in, in codes and expectations. But it's a slow process and we're rewriting this whole thing. And not to be, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but I kind of wonder what what's the point? Um, why couldn't we just, you know, take two PDFs, the national and the Ontario code, do a comparison, figure out what the bits are that are different and simply amend the national code with some subtle pieces that make it Ontario specific. That would be far easier and faster. Why can't we do that? You'd have to ask uh, <laughs> Minister of Municipal mm -hmm. Housing, um, you know, Minister in Charge of the Building Code. You'd have to ask them. Um, and, and it's a good question. Um, there are things that I think should be sort of more provincially specific. Right. Uh, and but the national code kind of deals with this. If you take something like really obvious, like seismic earthquake resistance design, well, the national building code in the back and the tables, it tells you what to factor for earthquake load and design in Vancouver, where you get a lot more earthquakes than in, you know, I don't know, uh, Gander, Newfoundland, where you get fewer. Um, and it tells you the difference. And this is all based on, you know, research and tables and backgrounds. So 
how much of the code has to be so specific. It's not like the national code doesn't recognize that there's more earthquakes in Vancouver than there are in Newfoundland. Right. It does absolutely recognize that. It's built on the same data. So what makes a, a national code not applicable is pretty small. There's pretty subtle differences and variations. And I'm not 100% certain, but at one point, I know that Vancouver had a building code, the province of BC had a building code, and then they had the national building code. So what are the subtleties that make Vancouver itself so special that it needs its own pieces that are different from the others that you'd have to really, you'd have to talk to someone who knows that level of code specifically. Mm -hmm. I mean, thinking cynically, it couldn't just be a matter of, you know, we're Vancouver, we have to put our stamp on the building code because we're Vancouver. You know, and maybe to some of that is that jurisdictional, you know, uh, certainly in Ontario. And that's what I really wonder about in Ontario is like, we have an Ontario building code. And so, you know, on my, on my speaking as a small business owner, I have to go out and buy the national building code. So I spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars buying several copies of the national building code. Then the Ontario code comes out and I have to go buy hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of code. Now I have two sets of books I have to update. And every time there's an amendment or a change, I have two sets of updates. I have two sets of books. I have two of these. And then I also have to do the same with the Quebec building code. And then I have mm -hmm. to do Newfoundland building code. Like I have all these. If I had one code and it was simpler to update, I would save myself a lot of money and I save a lot of headache too. And just to be clear, and you, again, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it's not like it's updated and then it's on a shelf for five years. It's constantly being updated as, as sort of issues arise. Yeah, it's constantly being updated. And sometimes the updates are, you know, errata. There was a typo, put a comma in the wrong spot, whatever. And sometimes <laughs> the codes, you know, are more significant. There's actual updates, like when they changed the height limit for mass timber construction. Um, you know, that was a pretty significant change. And, and that was really good. But then, you know, that update comes out nationally and it comes out here and then it gets rolled down. And, and then you get conflicting standards like um, the uh, national code has a specific requirement for building durability that the Ontario code doesn't. And it doesn't have it in Ontario um, because, you know, when they were negotiating and planning, uh, you know, the Ontario code, I'm, I'm told, I don't know this for certain, but I'm told that they couldn't get agreement on whether or not durability was important to a building code um, and it was driven by input from industry stakeholders, i.e., you know, the development industry didn't want to be forced to make more durable buildings that met the requirements that are set out in the national code. I see. Okay. Well, I want to, I'll come back around to that in a sec. Um, I think we have a th sort of a thorough understanding of how these, how the building code is developed and, and sort of the issues therein. I want to look at it from the other side now, which is what, role does the building code have or what impact does the building code have on the construction of affordable housing or of, of housing that can be attainable um like what role does that play in in sort of what we're, we're experiencing right now with the housing crisis okay um so i'll i'll try not to get really deep into the technical things but let's say for example we wanted you you adam had a small property and you wanted to develop it um for housing and you said i want to make you know affordable rental housing and i you hired me i said okay so if you build three stories then and you build less than a certain square footage um less than a certain footprint area you can build three stories you don't need an elevator you don't need a sprinkler system 
Mm-hmm. And you said, oh, geez, okay, that's that's good. That saves me a lot of money. I don't need sprinklers. I don't need an elevator. So you fall into that category. Then you turn to me and you say, I only three stories. Um, I can only fit, you know, six apartments per floor. So I only get 18 apartments. So, um, you know, that I can't, I can't make a return on the investment to only get 18 apartments. I need at least 20 apartments to make this work. I said, okay, so we're going to lift the building halfway out of the ground and you're going to get some basement apartments in there. And you said, great, I can do that. Great. So we meet all the building code requirements because it's still a three-story building with a basement, doesn't need sprinklers, doesn't need an elevator. We build the building and your market for this building, um, you realize now you can't have anyone who has uh, you know, accessibility needs because <clears throat> you don't meet the accessibility requirements because there's no elevator. Mm-hmm. Um, your rental market is more challenging because... Uh, it's hard to get, uh, you know, strollers in and out, groceries up and down, half a flight of stairs to get into the front door. People are going to carry their groceries up to the third floor, all these things. But you've met the minimum building code requirement. So your market is smaller because you've you've chosen that, that model. You say to me, Tony, we're going to build another building. Um, but this time I want it to be more accessible. I said, great. So now you have an accessible building. Um, now you have an elevator. Well, in order to get the same height limits and the same height requirements, now you've got to be four stories. Okay, now you need a sprinkler system. And you don't have a choice. You can't not have a sprinkler system because the building code says unequivocally, at four stories or more, thou shalt have a, a sprinkler system. So suddenly you're faced with that extra cost. And I'm not saying that sprinkler systems are a bad thing. I'm just saying you don't get a choice. Boom, suddenly you need a sprinkler system. Now you do the math and you say to me, geez, Tone, for four stories, uh, I need to have a sprinkler system and an elevator. So now my cost has gone up. In order to make this project financially viable, I can't just have the same four floors of apartments. I need to have uh, five floors of apartments. And I say, okay, so five floors of apartments. Uh, We can still build that in wood, but gee, building that out of conventional sort of two by fours and two by tens and conventional lumber is really starts to get really difficult. The structural limitations of that would become more difficult. So now we're up into a slightly into another category. So now you're looking at a steel building or you're looking at a mass timber building. So, and you don't get it, I mean, there's a structural limitation. So now you're up a little higher. So you say, okay, well, I can't really make the economics of that work. We're gonna go to six stories. I say six stories, great, no problem. Six stories, oh, you know what? Guess what? The sprinkler system you've already agreed to do in the four story building, now that sprinkler system that you're required to have and you have no choice in the municipal water pressure isn't big enough to drive water up to the sixth floor for a mechanical system so now you need a pump but the building code says that that pump has to be run by a generator which has to run on diesel or gas so now you can't have a zero carbon building because you need to bring diesel or gas into the building and that's more expensive because now you need a gas pump and you need a fuel pump and you need a fuel containment system and a generator and all this kind of stuff. So you say to me, geez, Tone, we started with a three-story building. Now we've gone four. Now we've added a sprinkler system. We had to go higher. So now we're at six. Now I need a fire pump. I can't make the economics of this building work unless I go to eight stories. That's the only way I can make this work at eight stories. So, or let's, let's say seven stories. So seven stories, I say, okay, boom, seven stories. Building code doesn't give you a choice. Now you're considered a high building. 
So seven stories is a high building and therefore at seven stories, the elevator, oh, it has to be a firefighter elevator. It has to be on emergency power. Now you need emergency generation systems. You need an on-site generator. You need this, you need this, you need this, you need the other thing. You need smoke evacuation, you need all these things. So suddenly I say to you, hey, that seven story building, here's all these requirements. And you don't have a choice because you're given no option for anything, any compensatory measures. Mm. And you say, hey, seven stories, I can't make a seven story building work with all these extra things. I now have to build an eight story building or I have to build a nine story building because all of those things add additional costs. Then you look at the zoning overlay and you say, well, the zoning permits a six story building. Uh-huh. So now you say, okay, the only way I can make the economics of this building work is if I go much larger, buy the neighbor's properties and make it a much bigger building, or if I go taller, and if I go taller, I'm going to be in a fight with a neighborhood community association because nobody wants a tall building in their background. So I'm going to have to go for a 15 story building, which is going to take me two years to get planning approval because I'm going to have to go to the Ontario Land Tribunal. I'm going to have to get appeals. I'm going to have to hire a lawyer and to go through this process. So I'm going to apply for a 12 story building, knowing that at some point along the way, I'll compromise on a 10 story building and I'll give that up. But I'm still going to be able to make a profit doing this. And I'm not going to make a huge profit. I'm going to make a reasonable profit doing this because I'm going to take all this risk and I'm going to tie up all this land. I'm going to tie up all these consultants and I'm going to do all this work. And it and if I if I if I'm lucky, I'll get 12 stories, but at the very least I need 10 to make it work. And this is all driven by there being very, very little choice. So I'll give the other example. Let's say you wanted to build an office building. Mm -hmm three-story office building, I could say to you, well, you could sprinkler the building, you could not sprinkler it. If you don't sprinkler it, here are the decisions, here are the risks, here are the pros and the cons of, uh, you know, building it in wood, building it in steel, building it with sprinkler systems, not with sprinkler systems with, you know, two exits versus three exits versus an elevator versus not. I, there's a lot more choice in how you approach the code requirements. When it comes to residential, it's really strict and it's really hard lines in the sand. At four stories, thou shalt sprinkler the building. At you know, at two stories, thou shalt have two exit stairs. At uh, you know, three stories, at four stories, you'll have a sprinkler system. At six stories, you must have a generator. At you know, it, there's very little flexibility in this, and that was the crux of the article I was trying to. I wrote in the Globe and Mail was to say we need more flexibility in this because if I could say to a client. Four stories is what's permitted for zoning and it's good scale for the neighborhood. But your choices are you can sprinkler the building or we can provide uh, every apartment with a balcony that serves as an area of refuge so that in the event of a fire, people have a place they can go to and wait to be rescued out of the smoke. Right. Then you could weigh the odds and say, mm, you know, half a million dollars for a sprinkler system versus, you know, uh, $100,000 for balconies, which I was going to build anyway. So, you know, that's a choice. If I said to you, look, we're going to build, you know, you've got a really small property. Um, by the time you put in two exits, exit stairs, circulation, plus an elevator, you're going to use up 50% of the floor plate in just that core stuff. So we can build that and do this, go down this path. Or I could give you one exit stair, and we, every unit, every build, every uh, apartment is going to have that area of refuge balcony. Well, you say, well, I was going to build a balcony anyway. Look at how much floor area I'll save. 
now I can make the building more economically viable by having a smaller footprint. And people are just as safe. And it gives you more flexibility. If you could do things like, you know, for example, if um, the the fire the fire rating for every floor on, um, I want to say every building above six stories or four stories, whatever, the fire rating is two hours. Well, that's just achieved by a poured concrete slab. Uh, the exit stairs are, say, only an hour. But if I said, what if we gave every exit stair two hours instead of one hour? And then we traded that off against having uh, a sprinkler system. Mm -hmm. Or if, you know, you could trade things off and you could have more flexibility, which would allow, you know, architects to have more choice in how we design and give us greater choices in the decisions that are being made that could reduce construction cost. First of all, that was all exceptionally clear, um, take, going through step by step. So thank you for that. But your argument here is, and I, and I think the way some people might have heard that is, we can compromise on safety. But I, what you're saying is, right now, the building code requires buildings to have all the safety features, yep. when you could just get away with having some safety features. Um, it's it, It's not just saying... It's not like getting away with. It's more that there are multiple choices for how you could achieve fire. You could achieve safety, right? Um, and and they have long term implications. So you know, an example is, uh, for example, a generator. Let's say you go to a seven story building, um, and so you have a generator. Well, that generator has an initial cost, and then it has an ongoing cost because you constantly have to test it every month. It's got to be tested. It's got to be right. maintained. It's got to be updated every time. Uh, you know, the Technical Safety Standards Authority changes its rules about something, you have to retroactively go in and update your, you know, your generator and your piping and your pumps, and you have to constantly update these things. You know, the fuel might leak and you contaminated soil and like there's constant maintenance that's imposed on buildings. Mm. There's no choice that's given to them. And so we're not only imposing added costs, but we're imposing added life cycle operational maintenance cost. And, and and there are compensatory measures that could be achieved. So, for example, in uh, in London, and I'm going to use this as a specific example, uh, London recently changed its regulation, and I think it's now they require, I'd have to look up the exact number, but I want to say it's 10 stories and more apartment buildings have to have two staircases. Mm -hmm. Because they've, they've deemed, and they have lots of case study in history that shows that uh, a single exit stair building is just as safe as a building with two stairs at that scale. Mm. So there's probably other fine, you know, number of apartments and number of homes and other compensatory measures and so forth. But they've determined and there's in their studies and there's analysis and it shows that it's just as safe to have a building at that size with one exit stair. Now, the one that people will say, oh, yes, but what about Grenfell Tower? That was a disaster. You're mm -hmm. absolutely you're right. Grenfell Tower had one exit stair and it was a disaster and it killed 72 people, 75 people, something like that. It was an unmitigated disaster. One of the primary reasons why it was a disaster was that the, the doors that, you know, served for the staircase, uh, it was difficult to use them. They were hard to maintain. And so lots of people had propped them open with a little block of wood or a brick or something, because that's how people got up and down the stairs every day. And so the the doors to the fire separations uh, were propped open, which allowed smoke to penetrate through the whole building and kill people. 
It allowed the fire to go through. On top of that, the building was reclad using a material that should never have been allowed. Had that material been not used on that building, those people would still be alive today. And that is 100% the fault of the procurement process, the RFP that allowed that work to proceed in a really, I, I can't use another word for it, but it's corrupt way that really compromised the safety of people that violated building codes. Um, and so Grenfell's disaster had nothing to do with the fact that it had a single exit stair. Had they had mm-hmm. two stairs, five stairs, 20 stairs, it still would have been a disaster. And, and it's a tragedy we should all learn from. Um, What's missing here is the subtlety that allows architects and engineers to come up with alternative systems that maintain the same level of safety, an absolutely comparable same level of safety um, in in buildings today. I guess then what's the missing element? Because obviously architects have no interest in building an unsafe building, but we have to have sort of rules and standards i guess what is the missing piece that will give architects that flexibility while also still maintaining safety like is it is it something like a building code can solve or is that something that can be written into a building code or is it i I don't know what it is can you tell me (laughs) yeah absolutely it's it's a matter of the subtlety of making very simple subtle changes to the building code so um if you go to the building code and this is like really in the weeds but if you go into the building code um, and you go to, so here's group D, so office buildings, okay, office buildings. So up to six stories, you can do this. Um, if it's up to six stories, it's sprinklered, you can do this, but it's combustible. If it's up to six stories, it's sprinklered, and it's non-combustible, you can do these things. Um, if you go up to four stories, it's sprinklered up to three stories, it's this. And so there's all these choices in how you do an office building, three stories sprinklered, th- up to two stories, up to two stories sprinklered. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of choices depending on how tall and whether or not it's sprinklered and whether or not it's combustible. So you right. get lots of choices. When you go to residential, which is group C, uh, and go to group C, do, 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 do. go to group C, you start out here. Um, so we'll skip the retirement home pieces because they're sort of a special thing. Uh, they're a bit of a unique thing. But you go to group C, so residential. Mm-hmm up to three stories sprinklered. Then you go up to three stories. Then you go uh, increased area, four stories sprinklered. And then you leap up to uh, non-combustible. And then you go to six stories and then you go more. So there's Mm -hmm. nothing between six stories and more. Hmm. So it's like the building code says, if you have a seven story building, you treat it as if it was 70 or 17 or 700. We don't care, but everything from seven stories and up, same code, same expectations. And when you look at uh, six stories, uh, it's very subtle, the differences between non-combustible and combustible. Mm -hmm. The leap from four stories to, uh, from three stories to four stories is is really subtle. Like it's not a big difference. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people might look at a three and a half story building with a basement and say, oh, that's a four story building. No, actually, that's a three story building with a basement. A four story building without a basement is not going to be much difference in size 
right? It, it's going to appear to the average person like very much the same building, but it's a completely different building code classification that requires all different kinds of stuff. And that's the barrier is that the thresholds between three stories, four stories, six stories, and more is are such hard lines in the sand that it makes it it makes it impossible to do uh, to to achieve the sort of subtlety that you would want to achieve that you can achieve in other sections of the building code. Mm-hmm. Why is it so different for residential buildings as office build? Like if you die in an office building, you uh, you know that. <laughs> you you still die. It's... So, I mean, a lot of that is because um, you know, in a house, um, in a home, you're going to have uh, combustible furniture, right? You're going to have okay. a person to flame. You're going to people are going to smoke in their apartment. That's going to cause a problem, right? Uh, going to cook they're not going to clean their kitchen filter and they're going to have bacon grease and it's going to burst into flame and it's you're, so there's all these risks and people aren't the average person isn't um i don't want to say isn't caring but you know if you live in a rental apartment building you know when you cook and you got a deep fryer and you know your landlord says hey don't forget to turn on the hood fan and you don't and so your kitchen cupboards get all greasy and you know it bursts into flame like you know maybe you don't really care you know, maybe that's you know, just you know, whatever, right? You don't really care, um, and 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 you know your own home reasonably well. Right. Uh, so if the fire alarm goes off, you know you know how to get out your front door okay. But you know, if you've ever lived in, like, certainly when we were students, we lived in a big apartment building. Every time the fire alarm went off, we didn't leave. We just went and stood in the balcony and kind of looked out. Is is this a prank? Is this like is it April Fool's Day? Is it the end of the school year? Like. And, right. you know, really paid attention in an office. People are more transitory, right? They're here. They, they do their work and they go home. And there's also more, um, I want to say more regulation. There's more expectation that when you get a building permit in an office, well, you're going to have a minimum flame spread rating on the furniture. Uh, you know, there's a bit more care given with how the furniture is going to be arranged to make sure people are, are able to leave in, in an emergency in a home and this is one of the challenges let's say you know and i'm looking in your background well if on the wall in your if this was your home your apartment there was a sprinkler head on that wall well you might not even know what a sprinkler head is you just moved in and you went oh what's that thing i don't know and maybe there's a little sticker on it that says you know don't put coat hangers on here but you go i don't know what that is uh, i really want to put my tv here and you put your tv right in front of it you put a big piece of furniture right underneath the sprinkler head. You don't really care. And nobody really notices. And it's not like your landlord is going to come in and tell you, oh, you can't put the TV there because, you know, you're in front of the sprinkler head. Like no one's really paying attention to that stuff. And right. so you have a sprinkler head and suddenly the TV heats up and catches fire and the sprinkler head explodes and, you know, water starts gushing out of it. It's not doing its job because there's a piece of furniture in the way. Right. And and this is the misnomer of everybody watches the movie Matrix and thinks, oh, the sprinkler head, all the sprinkler heads go off in the whole building all at the same time. That, that that never happens. Right. If there's a fire in your living room and the sprinkler head breaks as a result of the fire in your living room, that head works. Mm. It's that head that's going off. It's not every head in the building. So, you know, it, and that's part of the challenge of sprinklers in residential buildings is that we think that they're providing a health a, a, a fire safety and they are but you know there's a lot of uh, occupant user interface 
that needs to happen to make mm-hmm. sure that people aren't, uh, you know, putting stuff in front of them, painting over them. Like if you paint over a sprinkler head, uh, you know, like let's say it's a condo, let's say it's an apartment building, you move in and you think, oh, look at all these white ceiling dots on the ceiling. They're funny looking. I don't want those. I'm going to paint my whole ceiling you know, flat black and you paint your whole ceiling flat black because that's what you want to do. And you paint right over the sprinkler heads. Well, you've voided them, but it's your condo. How is the owner of the building or the common element in the building supposed to control that? Yeah. It's, it, it's interesting. I don't know what, I don't know what to say. It It, it, it is interesting. Just how all of this intersects, how, and I, and I guess what, what it makes me wonder is, is the building cone designed in a way that, and it sounds like it isn't, but it isn't designed in a way that's, that reflects how people live in their homes or their apartments or wherever they are. It's it's a very static sort of like ideal universe kind of thing. It is. And it has some very large gaps. Um, and it that's part of its challenge. Um, you know, the building code requires accessibility. Um, yeah. So say apartment building, it requires that the, door to the apartment building be accessible so that you could have someone in a wheelchair come and visit you um, and you could live in that apartment uh, because you could get in and out of the door uh, but it doesn't require that the kitchen cabinets be accessible so and it doesn't require that the bathroom be accessible it requires that the bathroom be big enough that it could be someday accessible but it doesn't require that the bathroom have an accessible toilet so if you are you know, you're sure you've been into an accessible washroom, sure. you know, there's a big empty space next to the toilet. So if someone in a wheelchair can you know, lift themselves up and hook themselves over onto the toilet, but there's nothing in the building code that requires that degree of accessibility in a residential bathroom. You could have an accessible apartment and it's accessible, but it could have like the toilet is right next to the bathtub and there's no way to get from your wheelchair onto the toilet. So you could rent this apartment and say, oh, I rented an accessible apartment. And you could wheel in the front door on your first day and never be able to use the bathroom. And you couldn't change it because it's a rental apartment. So you, you're not allowed to make changes to it like that. And that's and that's a that's a huge glaring error in the building code. Mm-hmm. To stick to accessibility for a minute, um, I, I, I'm appreciating what you just said too, that we kind of do things halfway. But, you know, I hear this, term come up all the time at plenty means like accessible units like uh, to be a fully accessible unit why don't we just build all units to like uh, an accessible like assuming like if you are uh someone who's moving into any apartment in this building and you're in a wheelchair you can move into any apartment and and you know if you're able-bodied well you know you're you're all set yeah Uh, well some of it is because um some of it is cost certainly is cost um you know if every apartment had to be uh, fully accessible, um, you might not have bathtubs. Everybody would have showers. So how do you, you know, give your two-year-old a bath? Like, okay, like right. there's some, right? Um, there's cost, right? An accessible washroom is much larger than a sort of standard, you know, bare bones minimum apartment uh, bathroom might be. So that takes more square footage and, you know, more expensive plumbing. So there's all those sort of implications. Um, there's also the implication that, if you're taking a kitchen, if you're in a wheelchair, and we're only talking about wheelchairs as one level of accessibility, but if you're right. in a wheelchair, the kitchen counters would be lower so that you could, you know, scoot your wheelchair underneath and you could have a countertop that's at a lower height that you could use. So that's great if you're in a wheelchair, but if you're 
in an apartment and you don't need a wheelchair accessible countertop, it's really too low. Like you get a really sore back, you know, working at a low countertop. So, you know, it's a bit of a challenge um, from that perspective. So how do you accommodate all needs all the time? And, you know, when you look, you, you think about the percentage that of the population that has accessibility needs, uh, that is a percentage that is growing as we have an aging population. So right. code, I think it used to be 10% of apartments had to have, be accessible and now it's 15 or 20 or it used to be 15 and now it's 20. I can't remember exactly what the percentage is, but that number is increasing because we societally are aware that there are there is a growing demand for uh, more accessibility. We also have to think about accessibility beyond just wheelchair users. Uh, wheelchair users is one level, but you know who are blind. So how does someone who is blind, uh, you know, they don't need a a larger bathroom because they don't need to be able to transfer, but they do need. Uh, accessible uh, elements within the building so that when they get to the staircase, they know that they're on the edge of the staircase and there's a funny little bumpy thing on the floor that they can tap with their cane or they can touch with their foot and go, oh, I'm at the top of a staircase. I better be careful before I go down. So that's an accessibility element. Um, You know, someone who's deaf needs uh, a a fire alarm system that flashes, right? So that when the alarm goes off, they're aware that, oh, there's alarm going off and I need to be able to leave. And so we've integrated those things that that help everybody. Right. Um, and, and so I think to your point, well, we should have accessible units. Well, every apartment in a building should be accessible and maybe a, only a certain percentage of apartments should be wheelchair accessible, mm-hmm. um, but every apartment should be adaptable so that it can be right. So let's and maybe you have to think about this differently from ownership of condominiums versus rentals that you could say to somebody oh you know you have a accessibility need in 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 your apartment and you need an accessible kitchen okay well this kitchen's not accessible so here's what we're going to do when you sign a lease in this rental apartment pull out these cabinets and it's a modular kitchen that we can modify relatively easily to make it more accessible for you. Um, and so fix things like, uh, you know, the sink, the dishwasher, the microwave are all hard plumbed, you know, connected bits that we're not going to change. But the countertop, the island countertop are things that we we will change depending on whether or not someone's accessible needs or not. Right. The other piece of this I want to address uh, is green build and, 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 I saw this interesting bit. I think it was in the Trillium newsletter that there's a difference between green building and energy efficiency. And and this is sort of one of the, the friction points is that some building codes talk, and, and I think it's by and large municipal sort of municipal building standards talk about green build, but the provincial and federal codes talk about energy efficiency and between the two shall not meet. It seems like there's an issue there. Um, yeah, and I think it's, it's tough. It, I don't know exactly all the different legislations, but, you know, we think about things, um, we have to think about things like sustainability holistically. Right. So, for example, having a green roof bylaw. Okay, well, that's great. You know, we and mandate every building has to have a green roof. Um, but if the building has, you know, our three walls and shitty windows, and it leaks like a sieve, uh, leaks energy like a sieve, well, great, you got a green roof, but 
you know, that's like putting Pirelli's on a 1984 Yugo. Like, why would you, you know, why would you waste that effort? Right. And even if you tick the box and say, oh, well, we met energy efficiency requirements overall, but we have this shitty building that's falling apart, but hey, we got a green roof. Um, so it's thinking about things in isolation as opposed to holistically. And this is where, um, you know, we need to think more aggressively about sustainability. Ontario used to be at the leading edge of sustainability um, in North America in our building codes. And we've really pared some of that back, uh, unfortunately, over the last uh, several years under the Ford government. Uh, we've pared a lot of that back. Um, but we should be much more aggressive about sustainability. And we should be thinking more aggressively about life cycle sustainability. So I forget mm where it is um i want to say it could be denmark it could be germany i forget exactly where but one of the european jurisdictions you have to demonstrate your um uh life cycle carbon cost when you're building the built when you're applying for a building permit so you have to show like this is what it's costing us in terms of the carbon in the concrete the steel the wood you have to you have to there's all these metrics for how you measure carbon and they've come up with some standards and and that's and that's a metric you have to try to meet in your building uh permit application i don't know to what extent they're applying that i don't know if it's across all buildings or only certain buildings or if it's aspirational or it's only federal buildings not exactly where it's going but we have to start thinking more carefully about that because when we have a building like you know there's some in toronto that have, i've read in the news of that are you know a 25-story concrete building and we're going to demolish it to build a 35-story building. Right. And then, oh, well, that new building is much more sustainable. Yeah, but that's because we're not counting the carbon cost of all of that embedded energy in the 25 stories we're demolishing to gain 10 extra stories. Like, it's ridiculous. Um, and so we have to be thinking more holistically about energy efficiency on all of these fronts. Everything from the design to the use of the land to, you know, the materials being used. And this is where mass timber is so fantastic because of its carbon sequestering. But we have to be thinking more creatively about that stuff. And it, is it a matter of, I guess, having a different, I guess, economic mindset? Because I, I guess that some people can make the argument it would cost more to build, uh, you know, depending on materials used and and what what standards you're trying to reach. But in terms of like over the life of a building you're probably saving money. Like there's the more of the costs are up front. And I guess, are we thinking like, are, are we thinking long-term enough when we're talking about the economics of, of green building? We don't, we don't think, um, we don't think long enough. We don't think far enough ahead. Um, and, and we're not transparent enough in that information. Um, you know, it, it's one thing for, for like for a government to say, well, we're going to, you know, build this building, we're going to own it for the next 100 years that it's going to be in use. So we want to make sure it's the best and most energy efficient, most durable, reliable building, because we're going to be stuck with it. And you can plan that way in the public sector and say, and there's transparency on that. But, you know, if you're buying a, you know, a, a townhouse or a condo or whatever, you're not necessarily thinking and you're looking at you know, you look at two different builders and you say, well, here's one builder and it's $500,000 for this, you know, apartment. Here's another builder and it's $600,000. Well, why would I spend $600,000 for the same square footage and the same floor plan? It's really hard to get deep into the weeds and realize, oh, well, the $500,000 one 
over its lifespan is going to cost me a million dollars because of repairs and maintenance and energy and utilities and everything else. The $600,000 one over its lifespan is only going to cost me 800 because it's more energy efficient. We don't make that disclosure clear enough when people are buying real estate. We're just, it's all about bottom dollar. Um, two years ago, I went to uh, I went to Paris and one of the things that they have in the real estate ads is they actually list the, uh, they score the energy efficiency of an apartment, even like used apartments, old apartments, whatever, they score the energy efficiency and they score the amount of carbon input, uh, the carbon cost of each apartment. So that when you look at two apartments, you can look at them and say, wow, okay, this is a beautiful apartment, but oh my God, it's it's got an F score in the energy efficiency and it's carbon utilities and it's utility predictions every month is this bad. Like, wow, that's really terrible. It's kind of like when you go to, you go buy a car, you know, you go stand mm -hmm. in the Maserati dealership and it tells you you get three miles per gallon. You go look at the Honda dealership and it tells you you get 35 miles per gallon. So how old I am. <laughs> you compare the two and, you know, you might look at it and say, <clears throat> look, if I can afford a Maserati, I can afford the gas, right? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. That's There's a segment of the market of that. But if you look at, you know, uh, Honda and a Toyota and you compare the two of them and they're kind of the same price and kind of the same cost, but one is 20 miles to the gallon and one is 50 miles to the gallon. You look at the two and you think, geez, it's pretty obvious which one is going to be more energy efficient. That's a choice I'm prepared to make. But we don't think that way when it comes to buildings. You know, we'll spend half a million dollars on an apartment and not realize that, you know, 50% of my apartment is an exterior window wall system that is going to fail and I'm going to have to replace it in 10 years because mm -hmm. it fail. We don't think that way because, you know, if we had to be that transparent, if builders had to be that transparent, they'd have to own up to the durability and quality of their build a lot more. Yeah. That's 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 an interesting comparison to to the automobiles. I'm going to wrap up with another riddle. Sure. Um, can we have? Uh, I, I guess can we have cities where you can buy a house and it's affordable, it's sustainable, and it's also a good quality, safe building? Can we have those three things at the same time? Absolutely. You what's have. what's holding us back then? Um, so a couple of things holding us back. Um, one is a broader, uh, public sector awareness, education, knowledge, understanding of the impact of the built environment on our lives. Uh, and that's something a number of us have been working at at a national level is to do that. Um, you know, you, we all live in a building, we all work in a building, we all exist in buildings, but we don't really understand how they go together why they work, why they don't work, and how to make them better. Um, you know, we need to understand that better. And it's more than just watching an entire season of HGTV. Uh, <laughs> we culturally need to understand, appreciate, and be better aware of, of our built environment and its impact on our lives. Um, so that's one thing. The other is that we are, um, you know, for good or for ill, we're a capitalist society that's driven by dollar figures. And so when we look at two houses and we say half a million versus 600,000, we never really sit down carefully to think through the math and dig into the details of why two identical products are different prices. And what does that mean in terms of 
quality, in terms of uh, life cycle value, in terms of energy efficiency. We don't really dig into that. We do that with some stuff. We'll do that with a car. Maybe we'll get excited because, you know, the, you know, it's prettier red or it's shinier. It's got, you know, fancier tires. We'll look at that. But we don't really think about it with often what is our biggest purchase in life, which is a home. Um, and, and we also don't, and, it, and it, it's driven by the financialization of real estate, right? Yeah. Uh, well, Tone Dreesen, thank you so much for, uh, for making sense of all of this for us today. Uh, I, I feel, uh, I don't know if better informs the right word, but, uh, I, I certainly feel like I, have, maybe we have some better understanding of some of the issues, but anyway, thank you for all your insights and, uh, and, and thank you for your time today. Thanks so much. Have a great afternoon. And once again, that was Tone Dreesen. You can learn more about Dreesen's professional work at Architects DCA at their website at architectsdca.com. You can also follow him on social media at tune.dreesen on Facebook and tune underscore Dreesen on Twitter. I will spell his name for you, T-O-O-N-D-R-E-E-S-S-O-N. And you can read Dreesen's piece from the Globe and Mail earlier this year on their website, and you can find the direct link in the show notes for this episode. And that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Source's Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram or send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, you can check out guelphpolitico.ca where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we'll see you next time.